I told the uh, first service this morning that perhaps I had uh, mistimed this little sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit, because I don't know about you, but I know that my toes and my shins are incredibly bruised from it, and that's perfect for the season of Lent. But here we are wrapping up this sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit on the first Sunday of Lent. So just imagine what's next. It's a little bit of a joke. The, the, the old joke says, is that uh, a preacher's responsibility is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So hopefully somewhere in these last several weeks, as we've looked at the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, you have found yourself either afflicted or comfortable. Otherwise, I guess I'm not really doing my job. Well, this morning we are coming to the end of the fruit of the Spirit, verse 23 of Galatians chapter 5, as we come to gentleness and self-control. I just want to ask, just respond in your minds, or perhaps gently out loud to your neighbor or to yourself, how does the world use the word gentleness? It seems to me, That when it comes to gentleness, the world doesn't hold it in very high regard, as it seems to use the word gentleness almost strictly in terms of personal hygiene products. (laughs) So many things, I mean, really, think about this, so many things are marketed and sold as gentle. Charmin ultra-gentle toilet paper in its mega roll. Cetaphil Ultra Gentle Body Wash, Listerine Reach Gentle Gum Care, and my personal favorite, Dove Gentle Exfoliating Beauty Bar. How good is it going to do exfoliating if it's gentle? (laughs) Then there's baby products, right? Baby products are sold, marketed and sold as gentle. Gentle Infant Formula and Renew Life Kids Gentle Constipation Relief Tablets. The world thinks that gentleness is about personal hygiene, it's about softness, it's about weakness. What about self-control? How does the world use self-control? Think about that in your own minds just for a second. Self-control isn't highly considered or highly thought of, is it? Usually, if the world depicts someone, at least in our media, in our popular media, movies and television, if the world depicts someone who's self-controlled, they're a spoil sport. They're no fun. You don't want to invite them to a party because they look like they've been sucking on lemons all of their life. And then the whole point of the movie or the television show is to get them to lose their self-control than to have fun. And yeah, they might depict some of the consequences of that lack of self-control, But our world typically shows self-control in a negative light. And so when you think about our modern world, America in 2020, do gentleness and self-control come to your mind? These two words and concepts are not the first thing that come to my mind when I think about the current cultural mood and attitude. And rather than gentleness, we live in a culture of aggressive self-assertion. And rather than self-control, we live in a world of self-fulfillment through self-indulgence. And if that's the world we live in, if those are the cultural waters in which we swim, what about us? Are we gentle and self-controlled? And then we hear these words from St. Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is. 
love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These fruit spirit, these nine character traits are bound up in the work of the Spirit. They are to be the character traits of those who follow after Christ. These spirit fruit is evidence of the truth of the gospel. It's evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit transforms believers more and more into the image of Christ. But what is gentleness and what is self-control? It is easiest, I think, sometimes to define something by what it is not as opposed to what it is. Gentleness might be a little bit like this. So we first begin by saying gentleness is not harsh. It is not aggressive. It is not violent. In that bit of high culture, we love it in our house. We learn a lot of things from Looney Tunes. There isn't a whole lot of gentleness, is there? Even Hugo... Hugo, the abominable snowman who appears in the abominable snow rabbit, he just wants a bunny rabbit to kiss him and love him and squeeze him and hug him and call him George. He wants to be gentle. But he does so with what? Incredible violence. Based on the John Steinbeck character, uh, Steinbeck character Lenny from Of Mice and Men, Hugo doesn't know his own strength. And even in his best intentions to kiss and love and squeeze and hug poor old Daffy, he puts a beating on the duck. Gentleness is commonly thought of as being soft. Think about that Charmin Ultra Gentle Toilet Paper and its mega roll of being docile. A gentle horse is one that is easily led. And we get this picture that a gentle person is therefore weak and pliable, is easily led and swayed by another. To modern ears, St. Paul's inclusion of gentleness in this list of spirit fruit actually sounds pretty surprising. How can anything that is soft be good? In Paul's own day, it would have been even more surprising. Biblically, the character fruit or the character trait of gentleness is, is intimately connected to patience and humility and meekness. And in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, gentleness and humility were not highly regarded. They were at the bottom of the character trait. They weren't well respected. And so we ask the question, you know, if our world doesn't think much of gentleness and Paul's world didn't think much of gentleness, where are we supposed to find what gentleness actually is, and how are we supposed to get there? Let's take a look and see how the Bible talks about God being gentle. We heard read this morning Isaiah 40, or a portion of Isaiah 40, starting at verse 9. And this is, this, uh, I would call it something of a, a hymn of God's greatness. The prophet Isaiah is proclaiming the greatness of God. You know, I think maybe just last week or two weeks ago, we sang that wonderful contemporary hymn, Behold Our God. And that, that's where this, that song comes from, this passage. Isaiah is saying, Behold God, who is like Him. He has called out of uh, everything into existence. He has the waters in his hands. He is great, and he rules with power. He, the, it says, the, behold, the Lord God comes with might. He continues, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? God has. That's how majestic and how powerful, how strong he is. 
He continues, Isaiah continues to ask these rhetorical questions. Who has given advice to God? No one. Whom did God consult for understanding? No one. Who taught God justice? No one. The answer to each of these questions is, of course, no one, because God is God. He's infinite in power. He's infinite in majesty. He's infinite in strength. He's infinite in understanding. He's infinite in everything. He's God. But nestled in the middle of this hymn of praise, verse 11, in the midst of proclaiming the power and strength of God, Isaiah says this, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Our definition of gentleness needs to come not from the world, they're come from God. It needs to come from God. And while our world thinks of gentleness being weak, gentleness is actually born from true strength. It is a character trait of God, the God who is the creator of all that is, the God who is majestic and infinite and powerful, the God who doesn't have to ask for advice because he knows. He is gentle. He stoops to help those who cannot help themselves. Gentleness is closely connected to patience. Patience is the ability to endure. Gentleness is the ability to endure hostility without anger or aggression. I was out at this stoplight one time right there on Airport Road, Commons and Airport Road. Maybe I'm being too transparent, but I was in the right-hand lane, the turn right onto Airport. Anna was with me, and I think Declan was with me, and somebody pulled up behind me, and the light was red, but there were no cars coming, and I was turning right. So you can turn right on red. So the person behind me honked. And what happens when you're sitting there and somebody honks at you? What happens to you? Well, I got a little ticked. Especially because I wasn't turning right on red, not because I, I'm a snowbird from Minnesota. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ann. I, <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got extra ticked because I was not turning right on red because there was a pedestrian in the crosswalk coming across. And the person behind me was so impatient, they were laying on their horn. And I'm like, I don't want to kill someone. Right? So what do I do? I'm sitting in my driver's seat, Anna. She knows what's happening because after almost 15 years of marriage, she knows me. She's beginning to sink lower and lower in her seat. Jesus. But I'm sitting there, and I begin to gesture. I was like, look, there's a person in the crosswalk. The honking continues. I open my door and lean my head out and say, would you relax or something to that effect? That's not gentle, right? I was not enduring I was not enduring hostility without anger or aggression. Now, gentleness doesn't always mean suffering in silence. It might mean that. But gentleness always means responding with truth without aggression, without rage. And folks, it takes great strength to do that. It's not weak. That's strong. It requires humility. Humility is recognizing the humanity of another person. Humility is thinking more of the other and less about the self. Humility is loving your neighbor as yourself. Humility is the root of gentleness because humility is the trait of knowing ourselves as sinners redeemed by God's grace and recognizing that we simply are no better than anyone else we ever encounter. It takes great strength to do this, to have the character trait of gentleness, 
with its close connections to patience and humility, this requires an inner fortitude that is anything but weak and pliable. What should I have done? I should have said, well, you know, the lady behind me is very, very much in a hurry, but I'm just going to endure her hostility as I wait for this person to cross in the crosswalk. And I should have just kept my mouth shut. I should have responded gently by not responding at all in that context. But instead, I responded ungently because I lacked self-control. Mm. Now, our world typically mocks this idea of self-control in some unhealthy ways. Self-control is exactly what it sounds like. We know what self-control is. We love self-control when someone else is doing it. The ability to control the self is to exercise restraint over one's impulses, one's desires. And yet the world wants us to give in to those desires, to, to let go, to have fun, defined as whatever. This past week, as if we human beings need any encouragement to overindulge in our appetites, there's great encouragement with Mardi Gras, with Fat Tuesday. There's that old joke about New Year's resolutions to eat better, to drink less. They only last till Super Bowl Sunday. Every television commercial encourages us to indulge, to treat yourself, they shout. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, we're told. A rosy picture is painted for overindulgence, pretending that the physical, spiritual, and emotional crapulence, it's a new word for you, crapulence, that's the state of deep unwellness that comes from eating or drinking too much. The world pretends it's no big deal. There are, of course, other examples of a lack of self-control. We, we lose control of our tempers. We lose control of our thoughts. We lose control of our mouths. I can't remember a time in which I felt good about a loss of self-control. Whether the loss of self-control occurred with eating or speaking, feeling justified in putting someone on blast. I do a pretty good job of maintaining self-control with my strategic nutrition plan. But then my wife makes sugar cookies. Anna is an amazing baker, and I, I consider it a part of my marital fidelity to only eat my wife's baked goods. So I stay away on a regular basis. I stay away from sugar and carbs, but this past weekend, just last Sunday, Anna made some sugar cookies with a friend of ours. And let me tell you, there are warm sugar cookies with gooey frosting just sitting on the counter, and you might as well have painted me blue and stuck some fur on me and changed my name. I hit those things hard. <laughs> At one point, I, I kind of came to myself, and I had frosting dripping all over my fingers. It was rubbed up in my stash. I mean, some of these cookies had been a little bit over-frosted by a beautiful 11-year-old, and so I was the one who got to eat those, and it was just dripping off me. I even, I even found bits of dried frosting on my sweatpants at the gym the next morning. <laughs> and they tasted so good! But man, did I suffer crapulence afterwards. <laughs> I felt so unwell. Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, St. Paul includes self-control in his list of spirit fruit. He's not just talking about road rage. He's not just talking about not eating cookies. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, when he lists self-control as the last of the spirit fruit, he's actually pointing his audience back to what came before. And starting at verse 16 of Galatians 5, Paul points us towards two alternatives, walking by the spirit or walking by the flesh. And walking by the flesh, he writes, leads to the works of the flesh, 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. That's quite a list. And then he adds, and things like these. Self-control is aimed exactly at those works of the flesh. Self-control, Christopher Wright suggests, is the opposite of those kinds of sinful behaviors. And self-control literally means something like strength of self or strength over self. It's the idea of temperance, the idea of moderation. It's the idea of exercising sound judgment. And self-control, far from being something that is weak or unhealthy, self-control comes from strength, and it actually is protective. In that wonderful book of wisdom we have in the Old Testament, Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, we read this, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. An ancient world city with no walls was ripe for the picking, open for plundering and looting and for destruction. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. We're open for looting, for plundering, for destruction. If gentleness is connected to humility and is the inner disposition of treating others as humans, and if self-control is the exercise of sound judgment and strength over the self to be the opposite of the sinful behaviors Paul lists, and if these are both fruit of the Spirit, how are we doing? And where do they come from? John Stott has remarked that gentleness or meekness is not the same as weakness. Gentleness is taming our strengths and harnessing our energies. Self-control is discipline, disciplining our instincts and mastering our passions. Gentleness and self-control, these two character traits, can only come by being yoked to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus pronounces woes upon a few cities that persisted in their sin, even though they had seen most of his mighty works. Jesus, in chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel, compares three Jewish cities, Chorazan, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, unfavorably to three pagan cities from the Old Testament, Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. These three pagan cities, Jesus proclaims, would have repented and turned to God had their inhabitants seen his mighty works. But these three cities full of Jewish people had seen and had refused to repent. Stuck in their proud self-sufficiency, stuck in their man-centered wisdom and learning, they couldn't see, nor could they understand, that the fulfillment of their desires, the fulfillment of the law, was working miracles in their midst. And at that time, that same time that he pronounced these woes, Jesus went on to reveal something to make proclamation about who he is. First, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus praises and thanks God the Father for his gracious will to reveal his truth to, quote, little children. In these words, in these verses, Jesus proclaims God to be sovereign over the revelation of himself and that God is sovereign over salvation. In his gentleness, God stoops to help those who are like children. Children are aware of their dependence. Children are aware of their insignificance. Children are aware of their need. And in his sovereign will, God the Father is turning from a nation full of prideful self-sufficiency and turning toward any who, like children, are open to his calling. 
Then in verse 27, Jesus connects himself to the Father's work of revelation as he also connects himself to the Father's sovereignty. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and this is really good news, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so Jesus then is connecting himself to the Father's sovereign working of revelation and salvation. Jesus is the revelation of the Father for the salvation that only the triune God can promise and deliver. All of that leads up to Jesus' final statement of this passage in verses 28 through 30, where he proclaims, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, the one given the sovereign authority to reveal the Father to all who labor and are heavy laden, all would include unrepentant Chorazon, Bethsaida, Capernaum, Pharisees, Sadducees, you and me. Jesus calls them to come to him for rest. Heavy laden with the inability to be perfect as the Father is perfect. Heavy laden with the sins of action and inaction. Heavy laden with self-seeking, self-assertion, and self-indulgence. Heavy laden and awaiting God's deliverance. Come to Jesus because God's deliverance has come in him. Rest from efforts of self-rescue, rest from self-seeking, rest from self-assertion, rest from the self-indulgence here and now and for all eternity is in Jesus. Deliverance from the physical, emotional, and spiritual crapulence of our self-fulfillment through self-indulgence of all kinds is found only by being yoked to Christ. Rest that is found in Christ. Rest so that you don't have to respond aggressively to the hostility of another. Rest so that you don't have to respond anger for anger when someone's ticked you off. Rest when someone has put you on blast unfairly. Rest so that you don't have to give in to the desires of the flesh. Being yoked to Christ, found in Christ, is the place of rest. It's the place of healing, the place of renewal. It's the place of gentleness and self-control because it is the place of relationship with Christ from the Father who gives the Spirit. Being yoked to Christ means submission to Christ and learning from Christ, the one who is gentle and lowly. Jesus is the gospel, folks, and all the benefits of the gospel are received in connection to him, in him. And these benefits in Matthew 11 are called rest, but in other places in Scripture, these benefits that come from being in Christ are forgiveness of sin or rebirth or renewal or re-imaging, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Being yoked to Jesus means that we take on His attributes in deep relationship with Him. His life and His way of being begins to mark our own. This means that in Christ, because of Christ, Gentleness and self-control can be ours. What are some implications here? Gentleness and self-control are spirit, fruit, and they are expected character traits of God's people. I can say it no plainly, and I can't pull any punches. All of the fruit of the Spirit, all nine of them, 
are expected character traits of God's people. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to look at it like a grocery list and say, you know what, I'll take the uh, patience, but I'm going to skip this self-control thing. Gentleness and self-control, just like the other nine, uh, all the other uh, spirit fruit, they're only found in being yoked to Christ and as the Holy Spirit works within us. We can't do it on our own. Our good intentions are not enough. Self-will or mastery of our own will without the power of the Holy Spirit just ain't gonna happen. There's an obligation for all who would call themselves by Jesus' name to look more and more like Jesus through active and intentional behaviors and habits. But these active and intentional behaviors and habits are born out of dependence upon the empowering presence and work of the Holy Spirit. J.I. Packer puts it this way, by the Spirit's enabling... Christians resolve to do particular things that are right and actually do them. Did you catch that? By the Spirit's enabling, Christians resolve to do particular things that are right and then actually do them, and thus form habits of doing right things. And out of these habits comes a character that is right. What do we do in the power of the Spirit to obey and build the family resemblance? When it comes to gentleness, some suggestions. When it comes to gentleness, perhaps we ought to be more intentional about how we engage with individuals with whom we disagree. Let's face it, we hum- we're human beings, and when you have two humans in the same room, you're going to have at least four different opinions. How do we engage with folks with whom we disagree over sports teams and politics, over morality and religion? The world's anger and viciousness, they're only escalating. You look at the politicians of every brand, the way they talk to one another or past one another. Look at the way we speak to one another and treat one another when we disagree. Look how we talk to each other, even in our own families. Do we do so with gentleness? Unfortunately, judging by social media, Christians are not immune to aggressive self-assertion. Being gentle doesn't mean being a wimp. It doesn't mean being pliable or agreeing just to get along. But being gentle does mean not resorting to belligerence or bullying or belittling. Gentleness does not mean not responding. Gentleness does mean not responding in all caps or putting people on blast. We justify this kind of behavior by saying, oh, I'm just speaking the truth. But truth without love, truth that is harsh, is a hammer that only leaves a path of destruction and broken relationships. Even as he cleansed the temple and confronted sin, Jesus did so without sinning, which means Jesus did so with appropriate levels of righteous indignation, something we really are not capable of. Gentleness means we handle people like we would handle a priceless artifact, recognizing that they are made in the image of God and thus are themselves priceless. When it comes to self-control, perhaps, just a few suggestions, perhaps we ought to be more intentional about what goes into our mouth and what comes out. Perhaps we ought to be more intentional about what we do or what we don't do with our bodies. Perhaps we ought to be more intentional about what we desire. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you think that you've aged out of the need of self-control. Paul didn't think so. We heard in his letter to his pastoral friend Titus in the second chapter, At verse 2, St. Paul says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. 
He then goes on to describe self-controlled behavior in older women when he says they likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. In fact, Paul writes, older women are to help train up younger women to be self-controlled. And then Paul just flat out says, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Self-control is a pan-generational problem. It goes across every generation. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. Self-control, mastery over self and the power of the Holy Spirit from the works of the flesh is required. Taking every thought captive, let's seek to control our minds depending on the Holy Spirit. Being gentle towards others, let's control the words that come out of our mouths depending upon the Holy Spirit. Knowing that what comes out of our mouths comes from our hearts and reveals who we truly are, as Jesus puts it. Knowing our bodies are temples for God's glory, houses of the Holy Spirit, let's seek to control our bodies depending on the Holy Spirit. Knowing that we are yoked to Christ, let's seek to control our hearts and the objects of our desires that we may desire Him above all things as we depend on the Holy Spirit. As we conclude this mini-series on the Spirit fruit, let's do so by returning to the core issue. For believers in Jesus, there ought to be a family resemblance. Christians are those who are adopted to the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. And in that place of grace, we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. This transformation, this growing family resemblance is for our good. But ultimately, it is for the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this transformation offers witness and testimony to the truth of the gospel to a world that needs Jesus. There ought to be a family resemblance. And intentionally seeking the power of the Holy Spirit as we obey, there can. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy and gracious God, we praise you and give you thanks. We praise you and give you thanks for Jesus, for life in his name, and we praise you and give you thanks for the Holy Spirit. That which you desire of us, that which you expect of us, you provide the power to accomplish in the Spirit. And so I pray. Holy Spirit, be at work in our hearts and our minds to grow the spirit fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, that we may look more like Christ, act more like Christ, and represent Christ to this world that desperately needs Christ. It's in his name that we pray and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and worship our Lord through song.